Uh, we've been looking at the life of Moses all during the summer in these evening services, and the passage, uh, it's short enough that I think we can review it. Um, and then I'm also going to read John 3. Do you see there's two scriptures? There's the one right before the sermon, and then there's one that was already read. I think they're short enough that we ought to read them together. Numbers 21, verse 4 to 9, the incident in the life of Moses we're really looking at. They traveled from Mount Hor along the route to the Red Sea to go around Edom, but the people grew impatient on the way. They spoke against God and against Moses and said, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the desert? There's no bread, there's no water, and we detest the miserable food. And then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them. They bit the people, and many Israelites died. The people came to Moses and said, We sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people, and the Lord said to Moses, Make a snake, put it up on a pole. Anyone who's bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it on a pole, and then anyone who was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, he lived. In John chapter 3, verse 12 to 17, Jesus says, I have spoken to you of earthly things and you don't believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came down from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. Let's end right there. Uh, on every truck, plaque, uniform, building that has anything to do with medicine, hospitals, doctors, the medical, you will see an insignia with an inner, with an, uh, a, a serpent usually kind of coiled around a pole. It's called the caduceus. It is the symbol of healing. It's one of the very oldest symbols of healing that we know. You've seen it hundreds of times in your life. You've seen it thousands of times in your life. Do you know what it points to? Do you know what all of the medical facilities of, of this entire country are referring to? They're referring to the incident which we've just read, that is one of the most bizarre incidents anywhere in the Bible. It's a story, as we read, about uh, an episode in the uh, life of the children of Israel, in which the children of Israel began to really complain against God, uh, to impute evil motives to God, uh, be very unhappy with the way in which God was treating them. God responds by sending into their midst a plague of poisonous serpents, Snakes that bite the Israelites, they begin to die, they pray. God hears the prayer and he says to Moses, here's how I'm going to cure them. Put a serpent, a bronze serpent on a, on a pole. You know, the poles in all of the, uh, the, the symbols, it's really a cross without a little top piece. It's a T, a cross without a top piece and one or two snakes entangled, intertwined, coiled around it, put it up so that anyone who looks at it will be healed of their disease. And you know, 
If you look at that, if we didn't have any other interpretation of that, it would really be a very confusing story. First of all, God looks vindictive because uh, the people are bellyaching, you know, they're, they're complaining and they're unhappy with the manna that he gave them. They're unhappy with the desert situation. God, God sends these poisonous serpents. So first of all, God looks vindictive. Then secondly, he looks impulsive and indecisive because he seems to change his mind. They pray and then he says, okay, okay, I'll, I'll heal you. And then thirdly, he seems petty and idiosyncratic because instead of, ju- I mean, this is God, can he say, you're healed? What's with the serpent? What's with the bronze serpent? You know, how weird to make them look on the very thing that was killing them in order to save them. So if you read the whole thing, you say, oh, it seems to mean nothing. It, it, it doesn't make much sense except that Jesus Christ points back. And because he said this, because Jesus Christ said this and showed the meaning of it, that's the reason why this symbol is emblazoned on all the medical uh, uh, technology and all the med- places of medicine and healing in the world. He said, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. And then he says the famous verse, for God so loved the world. Whenever you see a hospital, whenever you see a, you know, an EMS truck or something and you see the, the, the snake around the, uh, the pole, do you think right away, for God so loved the world? that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes on him should not perish but have everlasting life? You should, because that's what it means. Huh. Well, you say, okay, how does it mean it? What, it what, what, what Jesus is saying, what Numbers is saying, what God is saying in the incident, and therefore, indirectly, of course, what every single one of those insignias is saying is that there's only one disease that can really kill you. Only one disease that really can kill you, and that disease has one and only one remedy. Now, let's look at the disease, which, of course, is sin, and let's look at the remedy, which, of course, is the Son of Man lifted up. Now, look at the disease, first of all. A lot of people get pretty unhappy about uh, God's response because he sends the venomous snakes in, and and, uh, there's a lot of people who feel like that's really overkill. Not a bit. Not a bit. Because one of the most important aspects, one of the two aspects of this incident is God is trying to teach us the seriousness and the character of the real disease that's killing us all. He's trying to show us the seriousness and the character of sin. How, you say? Well, that's what I'm here to do, okay? Uh, First of all, the seriousness of it. Something that uh, is just hard to avoid this year. Because we've come to the anniversary, the 50th anniversary of the end of World War II, you remember back in the spring there was an awful lot of articles in in the magazines and the periodicals and newspapers when uh, we got to the 50th anniversary of the freeing of the death camps in, in Europe. All of the people who had been, uh, the, the races that were out of, uh, out of favor in Nazi Germany, people just being herded into the ovens. And now as we got a little later in the year, we've come to the 50th anniversary of uh, the bombing of uh, uh, the, you know, the atomic bomb and the end of the war with Japan and so on. So you can't help but remember something. Up until the end of World War II, for a good hundred years, Western intellectuals, Western people had a very optimistic view of human nature and it died in 1945. Oh, we didn't know it died. You know, a lot, you know when you first cut uh, head off a chicken, 
it runs around for a long time. It's one of the most awful things. Uh, you know, it continues to run around very often. Uh, and that often, you know, it's a sort of a slow death. In 1945, the head was cut off. Western human thinking's optimistic assessment of human nature. And it's been running around for a long time, but it's finally dying. Because when we went into the death camps, the first question that came up is, how in the world was anyone capable of doing something like this? And that is a philosophical question that gets you into a corner, and anybody who thinks about it eventually will lose their optimistic assessment of human nature. See, up until 1945, uh, the average intellectual person, the average uh, thinker in the West said, for 100 years they've been saying, that uh, human beings are basically good, basically perfectible. The reason that we have the wars, the reason we have racism, the reason we have crime, the reason we have violence, the reason we have the, the problems we have, is simply bad social conditioning. Bad social conditioning. Poor modeling, bad education. We can get everything right. And that died in 1945, but it took a while. If you want, you, one of the, uh, somebody I'm still reading because I'm just fascinated, even though he died quite a while ago, was a Pulitzer Prize winning author named Ernest Becker. And it's very interesting if you read his works up until the last one before he died, it was actually published after he died, called Escape from Evil. In Escape from Evil, he said, I started out back in the 50s believing in bureaucratic science, that is sociology and human planning, we could deal with the problems of society because human beings were not that flawed. He says by the time he died, he realized there is something wrong with us. There is something evil in us. The problems are not going to be dealt with just simply with social planning. But you see, it started in 1945 because here's the question you can't get around. How could anybody be capable of doing what was done in the death camps? And there's only two answers. The one answer is there's something in some people that makes them capable of this. Okay, that's the first answer. There's something in some people. Who? <laughs> and right away, we have to, uh, people did say this immediately. In fact, if you read the uh, interviews that, that with uh, many of the, of the American GIs that freed the death camps and saw this stuff firsthand, they said, well, obviously, there's something about Germans or there's something about the Japanese or something about these people. We would never do something like this. Americans couldn't do it. So the first, first possible answer is there's something in some people that makes you capable, but the real problem you've got with that is as soon as you start to do that, you open yourself to what? If you say there's some people who are kind of subhuman below me, that opens you up to justify doing to them what they did to others because they had the same view. See, if you believe there's somebody who's that far below you, then you're able to sort of treat them as less than equal human being. As soon as you decide only some people are capable of doing what happened in the death camps, that is the racism that made the death camps possible. That self-justifying behavior. That's saying some people are more wicked by nationality. Some people are more wicked by culture. Some people are more inferior. So that, that is actually a problem that, that eats itself up. That's a, that's a, that's a, as the philosophers say, that's a defeater. It's a self-defeater. Well, then what's the other possibility? If you don't say that something in some people makes you capable of that, then the answer is to say that something in all of us, there's something in all of us that though it may look on the surface kind of innocuous, 
I mean, look, on the surface, not very serious. There's something in all of us that's so potent that under the right conditions, it can turn us into monsters. Now, the Bible says that's sin. And if that's true, then you can't treat it lightly. And when it rears its ugly head, even in its most innocuous forms, you better do something about it. You know, a headache might just mean you didn't sleep very well, but it also might mean a brain tumor. Something as innocuous as a headache might mean that there is something eating away at the entrails of your soul, at the very vitals of your life. The Bible says that there are signs that on the surface don't look that bad, but they're headaches. They're signs of a tumor. And they are signs of something so potent that under the right circumstances it can turn you into a monster. It's called sin. It's serious. And that's the reason that God does not treat it as something that's not. Well, you say, but what is this sin? They were just complaining against God. They were saying, why did you bring us into the desert to uh, to die here? And this manna that you've given us, now, without going into much detail here, manna simply meant that they were going through the wilderness on the way to, to their promised land, and the wilderness was uh, a desert. It wasn't capable of sustaining a large group of people. Every morning, God sent down manna from heaven. It was uh, some kind of resin that, that uh, they would, it fell on the plants like dew. They would pick it up, and they would turn it into cakes and, and various sorts of pastries and so on. And they said, this isn't good enough. We want more. We want other things. We don't like it. And you say, that's not very serious. It's a headache. But you see, a doctor who would know that a headache was definitely a sign of a tumor would say, would slap you into the hospital and do all kinds of tests and begin some radical kinds of procedures because he or she, the doctor, knows. When God does what he did to the Israelites, it was because he knew that that complaining, that bickering, that dissatisfaction, that itch, that discontent is a headache that's a sign of something terrible inside us. That's the reason why he does such radical things. That's why reason he slaps literally the Israelites as a body into the hospital. And he does a radical procedure on them. Well, you say, well, okay, that's the importance. It shows the seriousness of sin. But now, it also shows us the character. And you might say, well, what is so serious about it? Well, that gets us into the issue of the character. What does this show us about the character of sin? Uh, back in the fall, uh, no, back in the spring, I read this. Uh, it was a, there was an article in um, the New York Times magazine, February 12th. I did this in the morning service back in, I guess, March. And the majority, great majority of you wouldn't have been there. So I th- and even if you had, you'd probably love this to hear it again. Uh, This is uh, November 12th. John Tierney wrote an article called Picky, Picky, Picky. Uh, Some of you may have even heard of this. Uh, This is a young man uh, who's writing, and he says he's been studying the habits of New York singles for years. And he noticed something about the way in which they date and they choose uh, people to date and choose people to marry or generally not marry. And And this is the quote. He says, Uh, He quotes a person who begins to tell him why a particular date didn't work out, and then he extrapolates from that. Well, he said to me, it started out great. She opened the door, and she looked fantastic. Beautiful face, great body, nice smile. Everything looked great until she turned around. Chuck, he said sadly to me, she had dirty elbows. (laughs) That was that. 
The guy went through with the rest of the date, but the relationship was doomed. So at first I thought, well, you know, surely there's some way to work it out. Maybe some therapy. Maybe some soap and water. But then I realized it wouldn't matter. He'd find something else. It was like what I'd been hearing from all my friends in New York about why their latest relationships had gone wrong. Well, said one of my friends, she seems so intelligent. And then she mispronounced Goethe. And I knew she was faking it. Another said, if she would just lose just four pounds, she'd be just perfect, but she doesn't seem to notice that she needs to. Or, sure, he's a partner at the firm, but it's not a big firm, and you know, he wears those short little black socks that makes his legs show every time he... This is a quote. And he proceeds, then he says, quote, New Yorkers won't admit to it, but they are victims of their own flaw-o-matics. That internal thing that makes us find fault with our current prospect, no one admits to having one of these. But for years I knew my own requirements in a woman were perfectly reasonable. All I wanted was a nice novelist astronaut with a background in fashion modeling. But I could see that other friends were too picky. And then he says, why are New Yorkers like this? Quote, one possibility is that New York drives its inhabitants crazy. Mad. Maybe the close encounters with wealth and glamour distort our vision. But another possibility is that New York attracts insanely ambitious people from all over the country, all determined to get more than they deserve and reject anyone remotely like themselves. And when they meet, the only question then is, whose flawmatic is the fastest? You think it's funny? Listen, what looks like a mild funny condition, God says, is a headache caused by a tumor eating away at the heart of your soul the nature of sin is that it makes you feel nothing is good enough. Nothing. Nothing is ever good enough. My job isn't good enough. My situation's not good enough. The people I'm dating are not good enough. The people I've, person I've married is not good enough. You Sin makes you feel nothing is good enough. And if you want to see a perfect example of this, you go back to the heart of sin, where it started. The Bible gives us the, the root, the primitive origin of what's wrong with the human condition in its story about the Garden of Eden. Well, what happened in the Garden of Eden? Well, it was the first sin, right. But what was the first sin? Well, you say they disobeyed when God said, don't eat that tree. Yes, but why did they disobey? And if you look closely, a serpent came. And the serpent came in and essentially, this is how the conversation went. How are you guys doing here? And Adam and Eve says, it's perfect. It's perfect. There's nothing wrong. You know, there's no disease. There's no sadness of any sort. We can do anything we want. It's paradise for good. You know, this is paradise. And the serpent said, anything you want? Anything at all? I mean, is everything per I mean, can you do anything you want? Well, no. There's one thing we can't do. We can't eat that tree. And you're satisfied with this situation? <laughs> I'll bet you that tree is a hundred times better than all the other trees put together. I'll bet you the fruit of that tree will make you as wise as God, and that's why God doesn't want you to eat it. And here's what happened. Look, number one, they disobeyed the rule that God said, don't eat that tree. But you know, sin goes underneath the breaking of the rule. What caused that? They found, through the serpent, a way to become dissatisfied with the Garden of Eden. Okay? 
I mean, you know, John Tierney says, hey, look at this. Look at how we're dissatisfied with the other person. Look how nothing's ever good enough. We're not only dissatisfied with them, we look in the mirror and we can't stand ourselves. And we look at where we are in our jobs and we can't stand that. And every time we think, finally, I've married the person of my dreams, and after a while you find, hey, that didn't do it either. Every, there's, it's never good enough. It's never good enough. Where does it come from? Way back, we learned from the serpent to even be dissatisfied with the Garden of Eden. By the way, Christians, this is one of the most practical things that you could possibly learn. The nature of sin is to make you never satisfied to always find something wrong, no matter what. And there's nothing more practical than to sit down and say, okay, I do have a bad boss. Okay, I don't have the best job. Okay, I don't have the, the, the perfect spouse. Okay, I don't have the best figure. Okay, I, I, you know, I have this or that, this situation, that situation, this circumstance, this circumstance, this is bad. I admit this is bad, this is bad. But if I were in the Garden of Eden today with the heart I've got, I would find something wrong. And therefore, I better start with myself. I'm not saying my circumstances don't have something to do with why I'm unhappy, but the root problem is I'm going to find something wrong with anyone, with anything, with any situation. Sure, wash off her elbows. He'd find something else. There's nothing more practical than on a day when you say, why am I so grumpy? Why am I so unhappy? Why does life seem so meaningless? Why am I so bored? Well, right away, you, you blame the fact that you did get stuck on the subway, and then you, uh, you know, you know, one of the great things about New York is you can always say I was stuck on the subway. <laughs> and that means people just don't believe you. Well, you were stuck on a subway, and then they didn't believe you, and then you, you know, and you, you're, you're pretty unhappy to say, yeah, I wish I hadn't been stuck on the subway. I wish the people had been more understanding. I wish this, I wish that. I wish all my friends weren't always moving out of New York, so I'm always feeling lonely. You know, maybe if I move out, but then I'll just be part of the whole trend. There's always something wrong. You have to say, if I were in the Garden of Eden today, with the heart I've got, I'd find something wrong with that, and therefore, I need to work on my heart. But you see, here's the Israelites. This worthless manna, this manna, it's not good enough. This is just a sign. This is a headache. And there's a tumor at the bottom of it. But this, one more thing. The character of sin is, not only shows us that, first of all, there's, dis, there's a disobedience. But the disobedience always comes because when you disobey the rules that God gives you, it's because of an attitude of dissatisfaction. Nothing's ever good enough. Nothing. Sin distorts you like that. Sin de- turns you delusional like that. It's part of the disease of sin. Nothing's ever right. Hear these people saying, I hate the manna. We had it better in Egypt. In Egypt, you were slaves in Egypt. Oh, somehow you forgot that. That's the delusional field that sin always makes the now very dissatisfying. Back there was better. Out front will be better. Over there will be better. Anything will be better than here. Disobedience comes from the delusional field that nothing's good enough, but the nothing's good enough comes from the root of all. What did the serpent actually tell Adam and Eve that made him dissatisfied, that made him disobedient? They said, God is really out to get you. God does not want your best. He doesn't want you to have that tree because if you had that tree, you'd be his God. And so a character assassination of the goodness of God, a disbelief in the love of God, a disbelief that God is out for your good, That fell in the heart through the serpent. 
into our hearts in the very beginning, and it's mistrust of God. It's a refusal to believe that God is good to us, that God loves us, that he's out for our best, is at the very bottom, and that's the cancer that makes us to believe that we've got to stay in control of our lives. We can't trust God. We'll obey God as long as it looks practical. You know, when people say, I believe in obeying the Ten Commandments up to a point. I believe in telling the truth, but not if it's going to hurt my job. I believe in, you know, not committing adultery, but, you know, we love each other. In other words, I believe in general that it's good for society and me to generally obey the Ten Commandments, but occasionally, what's that mean? That means I don't trust God all the way. I don't trust his goodness all the way. I've got to stay in control of my own life. Disobedience comes from dissatisfaction. Dissatisfaction comes because you don't believe in the goodness of God. And that's right there. They don't just say, do they? They don't just say, all we get is this miserable manna. It says, why have you brought us into the desert to die? They don't just say that to Moses. They say it to God. The reason you're so dissatisfied with everything in life, and that's the delusional field of sin, is because you don't trust God. You don't put yourself completely in his arms. You don't obey him thoroughly. You don't trust him. Look, here's three kinds of people. Here's the bad person who goes around disobeying God. I'm not going to obey the Ten Commandments. Why? You don't believe in the goodness of God. You believe that somehow you'll miss out if you obey God. All right? Here's, this, here's the very religious person, always going around feeling very guilty like I'm never good enough. What's that mean? You don't believe in the grace of God. You don't believe in the forgiveness of God. You don't believe that he can love you in spite of your sin. Here's the, here's the bad. Here's the, here's the sad. And there's the mad. Why have the things gone wrong in my life? Why has God let this and that happen? Why? You don't believe that God could possibly work these things into some kind of goodness for you? You don't believe that God's out to try to teach you things that would be better than the goodness supposedly, that he's withheld from you, he's making you wise, he's growing you up, he's showing you things. Here's the bad, here's the sad, and here's the mad. What is at the bottom of all of it? Here's the irreligious, here's the very religious. Here's the, the unhappy person. At the bottom of all, I don't believe there's a good God out there. I don't. Therefore, I got to stay in control of my own life, but you will always be thirsty. You will be insatiable. Nothing will ever be good enough because you're built for God alone. And you're going to be very picky. You're going to be judging everything because deep inside you're judging yourself because you know you're rebelling against the one who made you. Now, what is the remedy? God, gives us the, God shows us the remedy perfectly. Three things. Number one, he sends in the snakes to lead to repentance. And you know why he sends in the snakes? These weren't just any kinds of snakes. The name... For the snakes in the Hebrew that's mentioned here. You know what these snakes are called in Hebrew? If you're reading in Hebrew, it would call them the seraphim. It says, they, he sent in, where it says venomous snakes, the Lord sent venomous snakes among them. It says he sent seraphim. What's seraphim? You know what seraphim means? The flaming ones. Now, some of you have heard the word seraphim because the angels are sometimes called seraphims because sometimes the angels appear in a blazing fire. But do you know that the, there was a particular kind of snake in that part of the world called seraphim, the flaming ones, because when they bit you, you died, but you know how you died? You got a raging fever, you felt like you were burning up, and you fell prey before you died to an absolutely insatiable thirst, absolutely unquenchable. They were the seraphim because when they bit you, they made you burn up. And what God is saying is, don't you see, my dear friends, and you are my friends, oh Israelites, my people, 
What I'm letting happen to you physically is what you're doing to yourself spiritually. There is an insatiable spiritual thirst in you. There is a spiritual fever in you that is going to bring you to a destruction that's far beyond the physical. There is a real disease of which this is only a picture that's really burning you up. Look at how you treat me. Look at how you impute bad motives to me. As long as you believe that you are wiser than me, that you are better than me, that you are more out for your own good than I am, you are always going to be in a delusional situation. And you will always have this raging thirst, never happy with anything, unquenchable. So he sends them a physical to show them the spiritual, and they get it. And we're told they came and says in verse 7, we sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. Real brief here, this is the first step to being healed of sin. What is it? Repentance. Well, what is repentance? They don't say this is unfair. Do you notice that? They, They do not say this is an overreaction. And here's the way you know that you're ready to repent for sin. When you say, Lord God, anything, anything, that you send me to wake me up is justified. Anything. Because that thing which is devouring me spiritually, sin, is so serious that anything it takes to wake me up and to get it healed is justified. Anything. The way you know a person is repenting is when they don't come and say, Lord, take away this problem. What they say is, Lord, take away the sin Show me how to get right with you. Take away the impatience. Take away the anger. Take away the rebelliousness. Take that away. Lord, I don't know what you're going to do about my circumstances. It doesn't matter. Anything you do in order to bring me to yourself is justified. They do not complain. They do not say this is overkill. And if you understand the seriousness of sin, how it destroys your nature, how it dishonors God, and it's destroying the world, and it can turn you into a death camp doctor, that there's no difference between that person and you. Not actually. If you don't understand that, then you're not going to repent like this. But if you do, you're going to say this. You're going to say, do what you want, Lord. This is justified. But then you pray for healing. doesn't mean you say, I, I, I don't want to get better. He, they pray for healing, but they do not say that what he has done is unjustified. Secondly, God has to show them there's a provision. And God says, put a snake up, a bronze snake, on a pole. Well, what's that mean? If there had only been one snake, and the snake was sort of slithering around and biting people, and they were getting sick, and then it was going away, everybody would be upset. And what would they do? The only way that they, anybody could rest and be uh, at peace again would be if some hunter came in to find the snake. So as the hunter was going in, everybody was scared that, you know, you you had to watch where you were going and all that. But what if the hunter caught the snake, crushed the snake, see, destroyed his head? What would it do? The only way to bring hope back to the camp, what would the hunter do? You know what they would do. You lift the snake up on the pole with which you killed it. You know, you smack a snake and then you lift it up. And in fact, that's the smartest thing to do with a snake, as you know, is not to hold it like this, but to put it, you know, with pinchers and all. And you would walk through the camp and say, I got it. To hold a snake up on a pole means it's dead. It's gone. It's been destroyed. It's been captured. And everybody would look and say, we have hope again. Well, now, what God is saying to the Israelites, not to us, but to the Israelites, by putting that up, it's God's way of saying, I am the one that healeth thee. I am the one that can stop the snakes and heal you of the poison. 
I am the hunter. I have the power. I am the one that puts the snake up on the, uh, the pole. Look to me, not to the snake so much, but to look at the snake is to look to me and look to me in, your, in my power and look to me in my mercy and you'll be healed. And that's what they did. What he was saying is, I'm the one that heals you. Have hope in me. But Jesus goes further and says, let me tell you what it really meant. As the snake in the wilderness was lifted up, so I will be lifted up. That first thing it means is that Jesus will die. A lifted up snake was a dead snake. A lifted up snake was a crushed snake. A lifted up snake was a snake that had been smitten. And for Jesus Christ to be lifted up did not just simply mean he went up the steps or something. He says, as the, son of Ma- as the snake in the wilderness was, was lifted up, I will be lifted up, which means I will die. I will be smitten. I will be crushed. But it goes beyond that. It doesn't just say I'm going to die. Here's what he says. He's not just saying that he will die, but he, will, he says, I will die as the serpent. What is the serpent? The serpent is the sin. The serpent is Satan. The serpent is not just Satan. It represents the whole thing. It represents the evil that fell into our heart. It represents the seed of the serpent in us. It represents the the mistrust of God, the rebelliousness, and the thirst. It represents all the things that sin is and all the things that sin deserves. And therefore, when Jesus says, I will be lifted up as the serpent, I will be struck, I will be destroyed, I will die, but I won't just die, I will die as the serpent. I will die in the place of the serpent. You notice in 2 Corinthians 5, Paul does not say God made Jesus Christ sinful. Of course he couldn't have made Jesus Christ sinful. If Jesus Christ had been sinful, if he'd become selfish and wicked and and as, as picky as we are, he would have never have gone to the cross. He never would have loved us to the end. But what it says is Jesus Christ, God made him sin that knew no sin that we might become the righteousness of God in him. It doesn't say that he made him sinful, made him sin. It doesn't mean he made him a serpent. He made him as a serpent. He treated him as the serpent should be treated. He treated him as sin should be treated. And now you know why when Jesus was on the cross and what he meant when he said, I thirst. Remember that? I thirst. It wasn't just a physical thirst. He was taking upon himself hell. You know what hell is? Do you remember the parable of Lazarus and the rich man? Do you remember the place where the rich man goes to hell? And it says he was burning up with thirst. And he prayed to God, to Father Abraham, and he said, I see Lazarus up there in heaven. Could he come and cool my tongue? He prays the prayer of thirst. It's not because of fire. Don't you see? Hell is the place where you are finally cast away from God and the thirst that begins here, the picky, picky, picky that begins here has now become a raging fire. That's all. Your conscience that's bothered here becomes a roaring lion. Your inability to find love here becomes an absolute raging forest fire. That's what hell is. It's the insatiability of spiritual thirst, a tremendous emptiness that makes you unhappy with everything here, but it's nothing compared to what will happen when you finally get your way. Because what sin wants is to get away from God so you can be completely your own boss. And when that finally happens, that little teeny bit of thirst will become a raging fire. And that is what fell on Jesus. Jesus Christ took exactly what we would have experienced in hell forever. He got the fever. 
he got the convulsions. He got the raging thirst. He got the unquenchable fire. He said, I thirst. It all fell on him. Why? Because, of course, it says in Isaiah, by, our stripes, by his stripes we're healed. He heals all our sins and he carries all our diseases. One last thing. Now look. As the Son of Man was, uh, as the snake in the, in the desert was lifted up, so the Son of Man will be lifted up. How do you get saved by the snake? You just look. You just look. You don't walk up to it and sort of rub it three times. You see, you don't go over to it and bow down three times and you don't pray a sinner's prayer in front of it. All you do is look. Years ago, there was a guy named Charles Spurgeon who became a great Baptist preacher, but he was under agony of soul and he was pretty sure that he was a sinful person. He didn't know how God could accept him and he went uh, because he, he went because of a snowstorm into a tiny little free meth, primitive Methodist chapel and the minister couldn't get there because of the snowstorm and some poor deacon got up and had to preach and there was only four people present. And he opened his text up and he'd never preached a sermon before and the text was from Isaiah 45 and it said, look to me and be saved, all ye ends of the earth, for I am a righteous God and a Savior and there is no other. And he got up and he said, you see what this is saying? You don't do anything in order to be saved. You just have to look. You don't say, oh, I need to work up to you in love. To look is to admit you have no loyalty in love. You don't have to walk over to God. You don't have to jump hoops to God. All you have to do is look. You have to admit that he's done everything necessary for you. You just have to look and see that he has saved you. And Spurgeon began to say, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I don't have to do, I just have to look, I just have to believe, I just have to receive. And because there's only four people in the, in the uh, service, finally, the deacon looked down and he, he saw only one visitor. And he said, young man, you look miserable. And you're going to stay miserable till you obey my text. And at that point, Spurgeon suddenly realized that he'd been running and jumping and, and somersaulting and all God wanted to, to do was look and to admit that he couldn't save himself. And that's, how you, that's how sin is remedied. That he is good. Look what he did. Look what he took. This goes right to the lie of the serpent. Jesus died in the place of the serpent, in the place of sin. He took the insatiable thirst to give the lie to what the original serpent said, and that is, you can't trust him. If you can't trust him, you're going to trust you. Look to me and be saved all ye ends of the earth. Therefore, by the way, if you're a Christian, you've been a Christian for a long time, I tell you this, there's still poison in our system even though we've been saved from it. How do you continue to get over the picky, picky, pickies? You know how you do it? Before you just use willpower, look. Look at him lift it up and say, can I trust this one or not? If you're unhappy today, it's because you don't trust him. If you're, if you're, if you're feeling meaningless, it's because you don't trust him and you haven't seen the love. He is the healer. There's an old hymn that goes this way. Ere since I saw the healing streams, thy flowing wounds supply. Redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. And that's how a Christian continually looks back at the healer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your son was willing to show us that our hearts that don't trust you are wrong. Help us to see that the poison in our systems 
is what really makes us unhappy with everything around us and help us to see that underneath the dissatisfaction is a real mistrust of you. Our guilt, if we feel guilty and hate ourselves for being failures, we don't understand your love for us. If we are rebellious and want to live our lives our own way, we don't understand your love for us. If we refuse to admit that the bad things that have happened to us in our lives could come to any good, we don't believe you love us. And we will be unquenchably thirsty and dissatisfied until we see you lifted up on the cross, Lord Jesus Christ, giving the lie to the belief of our heart that we can't trust you. Heal us as we look. Remove the poison. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.